Yes, I'm fat, and I know that I'm fat. I know because every day something or someone reminds me I'm fat. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. As he was playing late-night gigs around L.A., Louie Louie was being passed around the Pacific Northwest by white teenagers. Louie Louie doesn't become a hit until a white rock band picks it up. ReSound is a remix of audio stories, music, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. Goodbye, fatty food. We are done for good. Today, the tenderest meat you'll ever hear, and the Louie Louie you never knew. Let me introduce you to Jonathan Zenti, a producer who makes dark, funny, surprising, and delightful work in English from Italy. A few years ago, he had an idea for a podcast, so he made one episode, and with it, he beat out 1,537 other podcasts to be crowned a finalist in PodQuest, a worldwide competition from PRX. Fast forward a few years, and now you also get to hear his charming, disarming work. His podcast is an exploration of the body, and it's called Meat. Here's the first episode, titled Host's Fat. I made this recording a couple of years ago. I had just finished an interview with one of my closest friends, and I left the recorder running as I usually do to catch some of those happy little sounds of family life. We had tea in the living room. I made everyone laugh with a story about my dad introducing himself naked to a girl I was dating. And then my friend asked me to come upstairs to check something on the internet. I left the recorder in the living room, still running. When I listen back, I hear my friend's mother and sister laughing about my naked father's story. Her mother says, Que simpatico. He is so funny. And then she whispers, You should tie it though, because it's too big for the staircase. <laughs> and then they laugh. Yes, I'm fat, and I know that I'm fat. I know because every day something or someone reminds me I'm fat. Like when I walk around the subway in Rome, always so crowded, so full of people, and the squeezed man next to me looks at me and I know he's thinking, we are all gonna die now. Or when I get on the train and I sit down next to someone and the person snorts, stands up and goes looking for another seat. Or like that evening, a date took me to her friend's place for dinner, and I heard the host whisper in his wife's ear, Oh my God, we are run out of food for the other guests now. And they laughed. Or that crazy time, I booked a room on Airbnb, and the host made me do a test to see if I could fit into her fancy shower, because she was worried I might break the glass walls. Or that afternoon, I was chilling out in a park, laying on a blanket with one of my friends, and she asked if she could record me talking about the first time I ate a lot. Blap, blap, blap. Okay, you start over. It was my first trip in Sicily. I've landed very late in the evening because the flight was in late, and I remember that I arrived at their home. There was a big bowl full of tomato sauce, and I was thinking, like, how am I supposed to eat it? There is any bread or nothing, and I put the fork inside, 
and inside that tomato sauce bowl there was 10 meters sausages okay that's the first time that I've ever eaten in my life and I remember it like every taste in every angle of my tongue sausages in a sauce yeah or when my late grandmother introduced me to some relatives saying this is my nephew the fat one or when the tiny daughter of a friend shouted at me are you fatty because you eat too many biscuits want me to carry on I can do this for hours. I was already overweight by the time I was about 17, and in 18 years since, I never really got why people are always reminding me that I'm fat, always pushing me to lose weight, always congratulating me when they think I've lost a couple of pounds. Also, I don't really know where the line is that divides normal people from fat people. The turning point when you look at yourself and say, fuck, I'm fat. The World Health Organization suggests you take the BMI test. You can easily do it online. You enter your weight and height and it says... Your BMI is 44.8, indicating your weight is in the obese category for adults of your height. Obese. What a scary word. I'm sure by now you are picturing me as one of those slobs you see on the TV shows, larger than the couch they sit on, always falling over their own feet. The type who needs a car to transport his tummy when he goes shopping for another bag of junk food. But I'm not that kind of obese man, not at all. I'm just fat. I can fasten my seatbelt on an airplane. I can walk, I can stand up, I can sit down. I can touch my nose with my finger. How can I see my weight as a problem when it's never been a problem for me? Once, I went for a complete checkup to see how these 18 years of obesity have affected my body. Blood, heart, liver, and nothing. I'm perfect. My heart is strong and my blood is normal. Just a little like in HDL, the good cholesterol that prevents heart attacks. So, if the thing that's wrong isn't inside my body, it must be outside it in the gap between my skin and other people's eyes, because they are the ones who see me as fat, not me. So I asked some friends via WhatsApp to help me understand why my size is an issue. Alberto says that being fat becomes a problem when it starts to damage your health. But as I've already said, I'm healthy as a fish, as we say in Italy for fit as a fido. Sudi. Sudi anche quando c'è freddo. Ilaria says being fat makes you sweat more than you should. It's funny though, she wakes up at 6 every morning to run, she boxes, she swims, she does crazy gymnastics called circuits and spends a lot of time jumping rope. She probably produces three times the sweat I do. So, sweating, no, that's not a problem for me. You should start worrying about being fat when you cannot sleep on your stomach. I can sleep anywhere, anytime and in any position. I've dozed off at gigs, in theaters, discos, on the beach, on benches, while driving, even in the middle of an earthquake once. And my weights never stopped me. And yes, I always sleep flat out despite my huge belly. Next one. It's a problem when you can see your own dick, I think. <laughs> 
Hey dude, what's up down there? I can see you. I can even see your two friends beneath you, so everything is okay, isn't it? She become always hungry, which is too expensive and a waste of time. I'm not always hungry. I don't spend my day gobbling down one happy meal after another. It's more about uh, an extra slice of pizza here, an extra portion of pasta there, large fries instead of regular, not eating enough fruit and vegetables, which are expensive, by the way, like organic food. It's a problem when uh, I don't fit any clothes, starting from jeans, and this makes me feel terribly uncomfortable. That's the first reasonable point. Clothes are a nightmare, particularly trousers, but I've never felt bad about that. I think that fashion industry should feel bad. They should make bigger sizes, rather than being scared that if a fat guy wears their brand, they will lose customers. And we've got money, we can pay. Il problema nasce quando le persone che vivono attorno a te ti giudicano negativamente con il giudizio negativo tu stai male, stare male fa male, quindi diventa un problema. Another good point. Martina says that being fat starts to be a problem when other people say it is, when they say that you are a problem for them. And it's not so easy to feel good about yourself when people are lining up to tell you there's something wrong with the way you look. But what's this really all about? Why hold the hate, the mockery, the mean jokes? When someone makes a comment about my body, particularly when it's good advice, I have this feeling that there's always the same warning hidden beneath the words, that what they really want to do is shout, No one is going to fuck you! Do you think all those gym junkies on treadmills and stationary bikes are really neat for their arteries? Being in a good shape has nothing to do with health. It's about getting laid. And getting laid is about finding someone to get laid with. And finding someone to get laid with is about falling in love once in a while. And falling in love is about sharing your life with someone else. And sharing your life with someone else is about having a family, maybe. And having a family is about being surrounded by kids and relatives and a community. And all of this is about not dying alone. That's why we hate fat people. They remind us of the lonely possibility. And that's why we push them to the margins of our social life. We laugh at them. How does this woman take a shit? Can she even locate her asshole? We give them good advice on their bodies, when their bodies are nobody's business but their own. <laughs> we don't want to be reminded that if we are unlucky or perhaps unlovable enough, we just might die alone. But that's not how it is for me. I had my first kiss when I was 13 and since then, the longest period I've gone without making out was maybe four months. And only then because I needed a break, some time to clean up a mess I'd made. I've had long-term relationships, short-term relationships, overlapped relationships, one-night stands, one-month stands, and I've always dated nice girls, I mean, I never felt that I was settling. 
They had boyfriends or girlfriends before and after me, and more than once they even left their athletic, sporty guy to stay with me, the fat one. I'm the guy that women see and they go, and I'm like, I know, but let me just talk to you for a minute. One night I met a friend in a club, she was dating a guy I'd seen a few times before, and I also was with a date, a really hot blonde. My friend and I chatted, introduced our dates to each other, said goodbye, and then I heard that douchebag guy ask my friend, how come that that fat faggot friend of yours get laid so often? I don't know how come I get laid so often. For me it's not so often, it's just normal. It's how things have always been. What I do know is that I've always liked my body. I've always loved it. And I've always felt confident approaching someone I fancied, because if I like my body, I know that I can help someone else put aside the prejudice and fears and like it along with me. If you want to turn around, or... Do you want me to turn around? <laughs> Before I turn around, um, how is my body and how do you feel it compared to the other bodies you have? met in your life? Compared to other bodies? Um, like, what's new with my body? It's a new relationship. I mean, um, I never felt like uh, scared. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I was uh, afraid of uh, your reaction to me touching your body. I, I was curious to touch you. I needed time, because I need time in general. I didn't know how you deal with your body. I didn't know if there were parts of you that I, you didn't want me to touch because you didn't like them. I don't know. This was the main thing. I didn't know how you were feeling with your body. But I was uh, neutral. I was... Is it something that came to your mind because you have seen my body or is it something that always comes to your mind even with other people with a normal weight or... Mm. Maybe it's because of your body. This is the body I've always wanted. That's why I love it. I wanted to be fat, and so that's what I became. My parents made me play tons of sport when I was little. Swimming, soccer, track and field, basketball. And the activity I felt in love with was ballet. I was very good at it, and I was the only boy in my class. All that ballet meant I grew up surrounded by girls. I spent three hours a day with them, three times a week, shared their struggles, anxieties and emotions, shared the same flat, sexless body common to all kids. Then, when I was about 11, their bodies began to get rounder and softer, and mine didn't. I was assigned to a trainer, a big hunk of a man, he had well-defined and very manly muscles that repulsed me. He made me do different exercises to the girls, sit-ups especially, hundreds of them, and my muscles started to grow. 
my six, my packs. My shoulders became large, like an aircraft carrier. They're still like that today. In the meanwhile, my prostate woke up and started screaming at me. I began to have sexual dream about my female friends, and when I was 13, my best friend at ballet, Francesca, kissed me on the lips before we stepped out on stage at the premiere. It was nice and weird. It was like kissing myself. With all that dressing and undressing together backstage, I began to feel more and more anchored about the girls who surrounded me. I wanted their bodies in a double way. I wanted to watch them and discover them, but I also wanted their softer flesh, not my ever-growing muscles, to cover my bones. Once I was 15, I had a boner just before stepping out onto the stage. I don't think anybody noticed, but I felt so ashamed, so wrong, that I pretended to have a knee injury, and the day after I left ballet for good. I filled my newly empty time playing basketball at the playground nearby. One time I even tried to join a team but I wasn't good enough and all that homophobic bromance in the locker room, talking about faggots and slapping dicks on teammates' buttocks, made me feel even more sad about the unwanted masculinity that I was transforming my body. And then, when I turned 17 at the end of the 90s, punk rock happened. I started hanging out with the coolest boys and girls in town, riding around in beaten up cars, our tanned elbows poking out the windows. I stopped playing basketball and started downloading albums from Kaza, practicing the guitar, translating lyrics and going to gigs. I drank beer after beer and I was always starving. I'd eat huge sandwiches and bowls of pasta in the small hours of the morning and then fall into bed. I was surfing my stormy teenage years, fighting with my parents, messing up with my girlfriends, skipping school, and being full of food was the only thing that could slow me down for a bit. And then something unexpected happened. As I started to put on weight, I noticed that my body was getting curvier. My hard, sporty muscle turned into soft skin. I finally had teeth to squeeze and hips to lean my hands on. Washing my body in the shower, touching myself in the morning under the sheet, I felt at home that this new exterior finally reflected who I was on the inside. But then the new millennium arrived. The coolest boys and girls in town started wearing slim fit t-shirts, shortening their trousers, riding bikes and hiking. For Christ's sake, I find my balance and the rest of the world cleans itself up, starts listening to the strokes and becomes fit, pretty and addicted to yoga. I try to follow the herd, losing 10 kilos during my first year of university, but I felt I was heading in the wrong direction. I didn't want to lose my curves. Hello. So I just went on being myself. It's ready. I went on eating. 284.05 pound. Yes, that's my weight now. Things got a bit out of hand. My body has been my magic chrysalis for 15 years. I hid myself in it and it gave me the time I needed to become what I wanted to become. 
protecting me from the pressure of what was happening around me, and I'm grateful to my body for all of this. But now I'm ready. I have the life I've always wanted. My relationship with my parents is nice and peaceful. I'm surrounded by people who love me, who support me, and spend time with me for who I am. I finally feel comfortable with I don't care what the fuck I am gender. I have a girlfriend and almost all my friends are female. What I want now is to find a little corner where I can create my own world. With my deft ideas, my bright colors, my grumpy temper and the people I love. I want to run my little life the way I want, the way I like. But I can't do it if I still have this enormous giant life vest around me. I can't do it because I'm still the object of disgusted looks, mean comments, shameless laughs, jokes about crushing chairs when I sit down or crushing girls when I have sex, odd advice about diets I should follow, sports I should sign up for, dreams I should give up on. To live the life I want to live now, I need other people to stop looking at me. And if I'm going to have kids, I don't want them to be mocked because their father is a fucking whale. I don't need to lose weight for my health or to find trousers or to get laid more than I do. I need to lose weight because people are chicken shit and humans hurt when they're scared. And I don't want to be hurt anymore. Chicago, July 11th, 1 p.m. It's my first time in the U.S. I'm here for a podcast conference. Since I arrived a few days ago, I've had gorgeous breakfasts with bagels, eggs, bacon. I've tried the original Billy Goat Tavern cheeseburger, the vegetarian cheeseburger at Shake Shack, where the meat is replaced by a mushroom cup filled with cheese and then fried. But then I saw some pictures of the conference. It was the greatest chance of my career, and I was the fattest person on stage. That body, especially my tummy, didn't have anything to do with the image of myself I wanted to put across. Hey, what's your specialty? Specialty? Yeah. I would say... I'm sitting at one of the best taco places in the Bucktown neighborhood. I've decided that today is the day to start my long walk to normality. This will be my last bad meal. After this delicious taco full of pork and avocado and onions, and this cold, refreshing beer, I'll start to eat properly, light and healthy. Goodbye, fatty food. We are done for good. Chicago airport, three hours later. That's how long my diets usually last, two hours, two days, sometimes a week maybe. But then there's a neon light that turns on in my head, flashing, who cares, and I quit. Rome, July 14th, 10 p.m. I've given up with the idea of losing weight. I've got other things to worry about. I was kicked out of my apartment and I've got 10 days to find a new one and move out. As I try to put my papers in order, I find a diet sheet. 
My mother is really concerned about my weight, so a couple of years ago, to keep her quiet, I said I'd go with her to a nutritionist. The nutritionist gave me a diet to follow. I didn't do it then, of course, but now it could be a good time to start. Not today, not this weekend. Next Monday will be the day. Rome, July 18th, 6.45 a.m. Okay, day one of my diet days. I woke up at 6.30 in the morning and I'm starting with a glass of warm water and a lemon squeezed into the glass of water. Yeah. According to my diet, I'm supposed to drink a glass of warm water with lemon as soon as I wake up. I don't remember why, but I do it anyway. Oh my god. Lemon as first thing in the morning. And then low-fat milk with whole cereals or some biscuits and a coffee. And then some almonds at 11, some pasta or rice for lunch, some fruits or yogurt in the afternoon and then meat, fish or vegetables for dinner. I need to go to the grocery store to buy food for my diet. First thing, lemons, tomatoes, fruits and almonds, chicken, beans, lentils, low-fat cheese, yogurt, chocolate dark, 72% of cocoa. I walk along the aisles wearing imaginary blinkers, ignoring the bread, chips, pasta, pizza, iced tea, beers. I try not to be bewitched by the devil itself, ice cream. What is this? Oh, coconut dream. It is an offer, 50% discount. No. And coconut dream is in the cart by the time I reach the checkout. Barcelona, July 31st, 9 p.m. I'm in Barcelona for some recordings and I've met up with my friend Diambra. She's lived here for five years now and the first thing she does is to take me out to try the famous Spanish tapas. Can you tell me what we ordered? Okay, so we have pan con tomate, which is bread with tomato, then tortilla de spinacas, which is fried eggs with spinach, then jamón ibérico, which is the typical ham, and then papas bravas, uh, fried potatoes. It's a very typical Catalan dish. And my diet plans die again. El Fonol, Spain, August the 2nd. 6.30 in the morning. I got a text from my father. A couple of days ago, I told him that I was having a salad, that I went on diet, and I was eating salads quite often. And um, now I'm in a naturist community Catalonia, Spain. So yesterday I was doing a recording completely naked. I took a selfie and uh, I sent it to him. And he just replied after a couple of hours saying, oh yeah, I see that you're having salads. I'm going for a walk now. Rome, August the 5th, 7 a.m. It's time to get serious about this diet. Doing it like this, I might as well not been doing it at all. I have to learn how to say no, 
to reject the offers, to force myself to turn away from fun sometimes. Otherwise, I'll have to keep starting over every day and I'll be an endless pain in the ass without any results. I'm going for a 30 minutes walk every morning now. Rome, August the 9th, 11pm. I'm at a concert with two friends, they order a beer and I have water. Per me è una bottiglietta d'acqua. Non bevi birra? No, non bevo birra. I'm watching this gig completely sober and I realize that I don't even like music that much. Antwerp, Belgium, August the 12th, 1am. I'm here to record some interviews for this podcast with my friend Katarina. Luckily, she normally eats healthily, so I just have to have whatever she has. But I'm starting to feel weak. My vision gets blurry sometimes, I get tired very quickly and I'm easily distracted. I'm not focusing on my work and I'm beginning to think this diet is getting in the way of what is important to me. Rome, August 25th, 7am. Walking is not enough. I don't sweat and after 30 minutes I'm just as fresh as I was 30 minutes before. It's time to learn how to run. Timer started. Prepare. A friend has sent me a training schedule. If I stick to it then in a month's time I should be able to run for 20 minutes without taking a break. 3, 2, 1. Workout. I begin by walking fast for 2 minutes and then running for 45 seconds. Gradually I increase the amount I run and decrease the amount I walk. I feel like I'm trying to bring my muscle back from the dead. It's been 18 years since I last used them. I listen to Katy Perry because if I'm going to have an heart attack, I want to have it during the big crescendo in firework. 3, 2, 1, rest. Rome. September the 2nd, 7 a.m. Sport is so good for my body that running has completely destroyed the skin on my feet. Every day I have to clean the wounds and change the plasters. I can barely walk. Rome, September the 8th, 11 p.m. I've got no patience for anything. At work I can barely say hello to my colleagues. I can't talk to my parents at the phone for more than two minutes at a time. It hurts. I have this constant pain in the place where the stomach meets the esophagus. It's like having dozens of kids droning in my gastric juice, scraping the walls of my stomach with their nails. Verona, my hometown, September 17th, 7pm. Tomorrow I'm supposed to attend a baptism. Of course, I don't have any trousers. For the last few years I've been a European size 58 or 60. There's a pair of trousers I like, but they are 56. I tried them anyway and... Come vanno? Vanno benissimo. Fucking A, I fit in. Rome, September 28th. I meet a colleague of mine who works on the floor above. We say hello and then she asks me, did you lose some weight? Today I'm wearing a black and yellow squared shirt that I haven't been able to fit into for three years. Rome, October the 7th, 7 a.m. It's three months since that day in Chicago when I decided it was time to start my long march towards normality. Hello, it's ready. 260 pounds. 
I weighed 118 kilograms now. I've lost 12 kilos or 26 pounds. I take all my clothes off and I look at myself in the mirror. My face has changed. My neck has changed. I'm less swollen. My teeth are less full. I've got these stretch marks that go from my chest to my pubes. I've always liked those marks. They signify all the struggles that I've been through in my life. Every fight, every dark period, every happy celebration that culminated in a satisfying meal. They are changing color now, turning violet, receding a little. I'll always have them. Stretch marks don't go away. I'll always have them to remind me how much I love the body I'm leaving behind. Hosts Fat, Episode 1 of Meat, produced by Jonathan Zenti. Some simple songs have complicated backstories. At the top of that list is Louie Louie, the iconic hit that almost never was. Here from KCRW's podcast Lost Notes is David Weinberg with the song's big, bad, bodacious background. It's a warm April night in Anaheim, California, 1955. Richard Berry is sitting in his dressing room at the Harmony Park Ballroom. He's about to go on stage. So you got a black guy in Orange County singing R&B to white kids in the most segregated part of Southern California. Suddenly, his ears perk up. The opening band is a Latin trio, and through the wall, Barry can hear them playing. All he's really hearing is the beat. That was part of what was important about it. It's that beat that changes Richard Berry's life forever. When he hears it, he reaches for the nearest scrap of paper. He scrawls out a name, and actually, he writes it twice. From that scrap of paper, a song emerges, one that becomes a powerful force in America. That name that Richard Berry wrote down on a scrap of paper was Louie, which became the title of the song, Louie Louie, a song that years later became an anthem and one of the most recorded songs in history. But all of that happened by chance. Barry's version, the original recording of Louie Louie, wasn't the one that became a huge hit. The one that rose to the top of the charts was recorded by a band of white kids, the Kingsmen from the Pacific Northwest, who were still in high school when they recorded it in 1963. And against all odds, against all logic, it was their version that became the most famous. Because if you listen close, the recording is kind of terrible. The singer's problem is that there's a boom mic over his head, and he thinks he has to stretch his neck up to be heard while he's singing. <laughs> Dave Marsh is a music writer and author of the book Louie Louie, the history of the world's most famous rock and roll song. Unfortunately, these guys were in high school and had no goddamn idea what they were doing, I mean, none whatsoever. 
The singer, Jack Eli, who's wearing braces, sang into the wrong part of the microphone, which is why, on the band's first take of Louie Louie, the lyrics are nearly impossible to understand. And Eli screws up and comes in too early on a verse. And then there is the moment when the drummer, Lynn Easton, drops his drumsticks mid-song and yells out the word, fuck. So after that first disastrous take, the band naturally expected to do another one. After all, you can't yell fuck in the middle of a song and expect it to become a huge radio hit, right? But because studio time was expensive and the producer was a cheapskate, they called it a rap. And the Kingsman's fate was sealed forever. Okay, let's give it to him right now. The idea that the Kingsman's version, this disastrous amateur recording, would become the definitive recording, it's totally bonkers. But it also makes total sense. This is no mortal song we're talking about. This is Louie Louie, a rock and roll miracle that throughout its strange life defied all logic. Louie Louie gets its power from its simplicity, from its primitive howl in the face of all that is proper and refined. It's the essence of rock and roll distilled into three chords and a haphazard pile of indecipherable words. It's a disaster of a recording, sure, but it's a magnificent disaster. But all of that came years after that warm April night in Southern California when Richard Berry heard that beat coming through the wall of his dressing room. God, man, you know, like... What a heavy hook, you know, I mean, and I, I said, I, I got to write a song about this. It was never easy for Richard Berry to get around. His whole life, he walked with a limp. Richard said that he fell off a roof when he was a teenager. Richard's childhood friend tells a different story. That Richard was caught up in the Superman craze and jumped off the roof trying, thinking he could maybe fly. <laughs> In 1953, by the time Richard Berry was in high school in south-central Los Angeles, he was already a successful musician, putting out records with his group, The Flares. At that time, Los Angeles was home to more record labels than any other city in the country, and demand for new music was high. There were all these storefront labels that were popping up, you know, in the 1950s, most of them were black-owned. Jim Dawson is a writer and was a close friend of Richard Berry. So there was a real entrepreneurial spirit, you know, in what we now call South Central at that time. Before Berry wrote one of the greatest rock and roll anthems in history, he came to play a prominent role in many of the greatest records to come out of the L.A. doo-wop era, including one of the biggest hits of the 1950s. It was the Thanksgiving Eve and it was really fog. I mean, it was it was like zero visibility. This is a recording of Richard Berry from an interview he did in 1985. And uh, Maxwell Davis, actually, who was the A&R man at that time, called me. And he says, well, Richard, he says, uh, we want you to come down. We've got this girl here. Her name is Etta James, and we're doing a record on her, and we want you to come and help out with the background. And I said, hey, man, you know, like, can't even see out there, you know? And uh, they said, well, you know, just take your time and come. Like, it was about 11 o'clock then. So Richard jumped in his car and drove through the fog to the studio, a trip that normally took 15 minutes, but it took him an hour and a half that night. I got down there, so here's this young girl, and I said, well, you know, now what's going on? And then she starts singing, you know, and I said, 
wow, man, <laughs> this chick can really sing. Over the next few hours, Barry and James went back and forth, writing the song as they recorded, Barry singing the role of Henry. Actually doing the song from scratch, which I didn't get any credit for. But again, it was Edda's record, so I just became like a figurehead of being Henry. Hey, baby, what do I have to do to make you love me too? I got to roll with me, Henry. Around the time that Roll With Me Henry was climbing the charts, Barry had a standing Sunday night gig at the Harmony Park Ballroom down in Orange County, a gig that would ultimately change his life forever. It was at that gig where he first heard the Rilera brothers play El Loco Cha-Cha and came up with the idea for Louie Louie. For all the times you may have heard Louie Louie, there is a very good chance that you have no idea what the song is actually about. It's sung by a lovesick Jamaican sailor who's about to set sail across the sea to be with his love. When Barry recorded Louie Louie with the Pharaohs, no one thought it would be a hit. It was released as the B-side to what Barry had expected to be a hit, an R&B cover of You Are My Sunshine. If you listen to the Pharaohs saying, and you listen to these harmony things, we were doing all these pretty ninths and seven chords in You Are My Sunshine. So that was going to be the number one record, You Are My Sunshine. You are my sunshine. You Are My Sunshine was not a number one record. In fact, it was pretty much a flop. And after its release, Barry was broke. So he got a day job at a record pressing plant, stocking records in a warehouse. And while he was working there, a familiar song came on the radio. Hello, everyone. This is Hunter Hancock, H H, speaking to you direct from Hollywood. And next on Hunting with Hunter, our disc of the day. Right after I got this job, they started playing Louie Louie, and they were playing it like every hour on the hour. Local radio DJ Hunter Hancock had taken a liking to the B-side of You Are My Sunshine, and he started playing it every hour. And for some reason, this really upset Barry's boss at the record plant. He was so peed off, you know. He says, why do you have this job? He says, man, get this job to somebody who needs it. You got a record out. I said, yeah, man, but I'm not making any money, you know. So, like, he put me outside in the cold in the storage bin, you know, breaking up all these return records, you know. Every day, Barry would be outside in the cold, smashing records with a hammer. And there's a very good chance that sometimes he had to smash his own records or ones that he'd appeared on, that for whatever reason, customers had decided to return. And all the time, you know, these guys were in the warm part of the building, you know, listen, hey, Richard, they're playing your record again. And I said, well, what the... I care about it, you know. So after one morning, I just took the hammer and I threw it in the bin. And I said, well, if they're playing the record, I'm going to go make some money off of it. And that is exactly what Richard Berry did. Louie Louie became a regional hit. 
Right out of the gate, the record sold 40,000 copies, and Barry hit the road, playing gigs up and down the West Coast. Before long, uh, Louie Louie was the number one record, and in, in my time, it was the number one record in San Francisco. And all over the Bay Area. I mean, I, I made quite a bit of money in, just in the Bay Area alone. I was making grand theft money off of Louie Louie at that time, which was 1956. Things were going great for Barry. He was young and touring on a hit song. But Louie Louie never really caught on outside the West Coast. And within a couple of years, Barry was broke, struggling to write another hit. And then he made the worst financial decision of his life one that cost him millions of dollars. He sold away the rights to what would become one of the most iconic songs in American history. And he did it because he needed money. You see, he'd fallen madly in love with a singer named Dorothy Adams. This is her singing the song, You're So Fine. And Dorothy had been in that doo-wop thing. She was a singer also. Barry asked Dorothy to marry him, and she said yes. And she wanted an engagement ring in order to marry him. He needed $750. He sold all of his songs, including Louie Louie. Barry figured that Louie Louie had run its course, and he'd already made whatever money he could from it. So he sold the publishing and songwriting rights to Louie Louie and a handful of his other songs to Max Fiertag, the man who ran Flip Records, the label that released Louie Louie. After that, Barry bounced around making records for a few small labels, but his career as a hitmaker was pretty much over. By 1960, Richard Barry made his living playing covers in late-night dive bars. Barry had no idea at the time, but in 1962, as he was playing late-night gigs around L.A., Louie Louie was being passed around the Pacific Northwest by white teenagers. Louie Louie, it doesn't become a hit until a white rock band picks it up. It's a familiar story to any student of rock and roll history. Up in Yakima Valley, in a sleepy agricultural town in southern Washington state, Barry Curtis was a seventh grader. In Yakima, we're in a valley... And so we couldn't get the AM radio stations from Seattle and Tacoma, but several musicians would go to Seattle and Tacoma and they'd buy records and bring them back. Curtis first heard Louie Louie at an after-school dance. The first time I heard the song Louie Louie was actually by a four-piece a cappella group doing the Richard Berry version without instruments. Curtis was just starting to play music. And at that time, Louie Louie was a staple in the set lists of the teenage rock bands all across the Pacific Northwest. At first, bands played it in the style of Richard Berry's original recording with the Pharaohs. But then the song was transformed by the Wailers, a Tacoma band led by singer Rockin' Robin Roberts. Hello, hello, yeah, 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 I'll say it. We gotta go. We were... Playing it every night, everybody was. It was kind of the anthem of the Pacific Northwest. Rob Lind also grew up in the Northwest and played sax with the Sonics, an influential garage rock band. When I'd start on the sax and run down to the B-flat to start it, girls would scream and be dragging their boyfriends out on the stage. Then it was chaos. Oh, 
If you were a rock and roll band playing live shows in the Northwest in the early 60s, it was almost a requirement that you play Louie Louie. And the same went for recording. Nearly all the bands of the era recorded their own version of Louie Louie. Paul Revere and the Raiders, the Sonics, and most notably, the Kingsmen. And I told you how that recording went. So how did this flawed version of Louie Louie become one of the biggest hit songs in American history? It was played as the worst song of the week. Heine Ginsberg, your host up and down the New England coast seven nights a week. A Boston radio DJ named Arnie Woo Woo Ginsberg chose the Kingsman's Louie Louie to play as part of his weekly segment, The Worst Record of the Week. But after Ginsberg played Louie Louie, the phone started ringing. Listeners loved it and wanted to know where they could get a copy. And the song started rising on the charts and getting airplay all over the country. There we have a little bit of song for you. And the song that we feel is still going to be a big hit around. I like that very much. But K-E-W-B, that's going to be very hot sound. You never know what's going to be a hit. And I'll miss my guess if that one isn't. People who liked rock and roll understood that it was a work of some kind of perverse genius. So that made it successful. And then the governor of Indiana stepped in. On January 21st, 1964, the governor of Indiana, Matthew Welsh, received a letter from a teenager who said the lyrics to Louie Louie were dirty. So Welsh and his executive secretary procured a copy of the record and listened to it. At first, they couldn't make out the lyrics. But as Welsh later claimed, after slowing the record down, he could make out the words. And they were so filthy that he said his ears tingled. And Welsh was not the only government official to get a complaint about Louie Louie. On January 30th, the United States Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy received a letter from an angry father. Here's an excerpt. Dear Mr. Kennedy, who do you turn to when your teenage daughter buys and brings home pornographic or obscene materials being sold in every city, village, and record shop in this nation? I would like to see these people, the quote-unquote artist, the record company, and the promoters, prosecuted to the full extent of the law. These morons have gone too far. Along with the letter, the father submitted a copy of the supposed dirty lyrics, which are as follows. Louie, oh no. Grab her way down low. There's a fine little girl waiting for me. She is just a girl across the way. Then I take her all alone. She's never the girl I lay at home. Tonight at 10 or lay her again. We'll fuck your girl and by the way, and on that chair, all lay her there. Because the lyrics in the Kingsman's version of Louie Louie are so unintelligible, the song became a sort of Rorschach test in America. The listener heard what they wanted to hear. Like a magnificent cloud drifting across the sky, not everyone looks up and sees the same shape. And kids in junior high, because they are kids in junior high, heard phrases like, bone in her hair and get her wang on. And they wrote down these dirty lyrics and passed them around like a playboy snatched from Dad's secret porn stash. Of course, to find out what the real lyrics were, all one had to do was contact the record company who put out Louie Louie. And when the FBI launched their investigation, that's what they did. But when they read the real lyrics, a Jamaican sea shanty written by Richard Berry, they still didn't think they were the actual words sung by the Kingsmen. And so began an 18-month FBI investigation. Some of the FBI agents sat around record players listening to Louie Louie at various speeds, 
trying to hear the words wang on and bone in her hair. While other agents got more exciting assignments, like going to see the Kingsmen on their nationwide tour. In fact, I recall one time specifically in a motel in Massachusetts, I think we were all in one large room, a knock on the door and it was FBI. This is Kingsman keyboard player Barry Curtis again. They checked us out pretty thoroughly, saw nothing was going on, kids drinking Cokes and, oh, smoking cigarettes and watching TV. Later that night, the band played their show to hundreds of teenage fans and a couple of FBI agents. And they couldn't ultimately find anything wrong with our performance, at least in terms of being lascivious. Curtis and his bandmates thought the whole thing was ridiculous. It was a sea shanty. And ultimately, the banning of Louie Louie and all the press it got was the best possible thing that could have ever happened to the Kingsmen. I'll just reiterate what so many others have said about things. If you're going to ban something, be careful, because instead of selling 2 million, it sold maybe 10 million records. And you know, it wasn't a hit for like one summer. It was a hit two summers in a row, which never happens. I mean, it doesn't happen to this day. Maybe a Beatles record. It got to be almost like Beatlemania. It wasn't so much our band was so cool like the Beatles, but our song was so hugely popular that they just assumed we were cool. (laughs) In the end, the FBI's conclusion wasn't that the lyrics weren't dirty. It was that they had no idea what the hell the Kingsmen were saying. In fact, after 18 months of listening to the song over and over again and following the band around, these ace investigators didn't even notice that the drummer yells fuck right in the middle of the song. So the FBI closes its case. And by December of 1963, Louie Louie had climbed to number two on the charts. It never did reach number one. And what song, you might be wondering, beat out Louie Louie for that number one spot? Well, that would be Dominique by the singing nun. Do you really think that for a week, while Louis Louis was that hot, that Dominica by the singing nun sold more records that week? I don't believe that. I think that that's just what they needed to do because it was too disreputable to let Louis Louis be number one. And I'm dead serious. And I, I think the same thing still goes on today. Meanwhile, Louis Louis' influence spread like wildfire throughout the world. But the man who wrote it, Richard Berry, was largely unaware that his Jamaican sea shanty had entranced young white kids across the globe. In 1978, the movie Animal House was released, and Louie Louie was featured multiple times in the movie. A whole new generation discovered the song as a party anthem for frat boys. And again, it started generating buckets of money for Max Fiertag, the man who bought the song from Richard Berry for $750. Berry, though, lived with his mother in south-central Los Angeles. His marriage to Dorothy had ended. She was now a backup singer with Ray Charles. And Barry was barely getting by, still playing in late-night dive bars. He said he would come out of these clubs in the morning to the sunlight and just think what it's going to be like when he would do this for the last time and come across the threshold and just fall down on his face and die, and nobody would know who the hell he was. And he wouldn't have any money in his pocket to bury himself. During this period, Barry's friend Jim Dawson, a member of the local doo-wop society, would get Barry gigs occasionally here and there. 
I would pick him up and take him to like a, a cable TV show or something like that. Meanwhile, Louis Louis continued to generate millions of dollars for Max Fiertag. I can never figure out why he wasn't really pissed off, or at least why he didn't show it. He just didn't seem to have a mean bone or an angry bone in his body. He was not an aggressive person. And I think part of the problem was that these guys, especially back then when they were really dealing with the, the white power structure, is they needed a, an asshole, you know, a guy, usually a white guy, an attorney, who could just go in, you know, and would make demands. Richard Berry might have lived out the rest of his life in poverty. But in 1984, a friend of Richard's put him in touch with the kind of white asshole, no offense, who knew how to make demands. A guy named Chuck Rubin. How's the beat go? Da-da-da-t, da-da-t, da-da-da-t, da-da-t. I think that's the best I can do. Chuck Rubin is the founder and president of Artist Rights, a company that helps musicians get the rights to their music back. Barry called Rubin up and told him about how he'd sold the rights to Louie Louie and several other songs for $750. He said that he hoped that I would have some time to look into his case and see whether or not there was anything that could be done. But because Barry sold the rights willingly, he really didn't have much of a case. Nevertheless, Rubin said he would see what he could do. And then nothing happened, and Barry continued to grind out an existence on welfare. A year went by after his conversation with Chuck Rubin, then another year. I think a few years, uh, maybe two. 1986 rolled around. And then this opportunity just opened up, and uh, quite frankly, I felt that we could take advantage of it, and it worked. What happened was that California Cooler, a brand of sugary neon green wine cooler, wanted to launch a big national ad campaign featuring frat boys and sorority girls in swimsuits dancing on the beach to the Kingsman's version of Louie Louie. Over 20 years of research and development have gone into every bottle of California Cooler. When Chuck Rubin got wind of the pending commercial, he saw his opportunity. Even though he had no chance of winning a lawsuit, Rubin figured that just the threat of one might scare California coolers away. And Rubin was right. Fiertag, the man who owned Louis Louis, agreed to make a deal to avoid losing the lucrative commercial contract. He would give Barry 75% of the rights to Louis Louis. But of that 75%, Barry had to give half to Chuck Rubin. It wasn't ideal, but for Barry, half of 75% was better than nothing. And in that first year alone, Barry made more money off Louis Louis royalties than he had in his entire career as a musician. Barry was suddenly wealthy, but his life didn't really change much. No, he still lived at home, still lived in his own room. His mother... Bertha was, she came from Louisiana, so she always had a lot of food, so it was always great. If you show up there, you'd probably eat. Richard Berry was 61 years old when he died in his sleep on January 23rd of 1997. He still lived with his mother in the same house he grew up in. There was little evidence from Berry's appearance that he was rich. Although, there was this one time when he took a cab from Chicago to New York. I got him a booking at a concert over in England. I forgot what it paid. It didn't pay very much. And then just to sort of 
make up for it. The the, the bookers got him a, a, a night at the 100 Club in uh, London. The thing was, Barry didn't fly, ever. So he booked passage on a transatlantic ship from New York to Europe and took a train to New York from Los Angeles. From L.A., something happened in Chicago. The train broke down or something. So he got a taxi cab, took the taxi cab to New York. I mean, he, you know, he was living high on the hog. I think he, he, he was staying in a, a hotel down at the foot of Hyde Park. I mean, so, you know, so he was spending money. I mean, he probably spent 10000 bucks on, on this trip, and he probably got about 1000 or, you know, 1500 for, for for the show. And it is here in London that I'd like to leave you with one final image of Richard Berry. Having traveled by train, cab, and boat halfway across the planet for a gig at a legendary venue in London, where, sitting on a stage, the author of one of the greatest songs ever written was really, truly loved. It was a real joy for him to go halfway around the world and have all this stuff waiting for him. At this show, there were uh, several thousand young people there. And when he came out there, he was a star. I mean, you know, they really loved him. And he, uh, what, I guess the way he looked at it, Louis Louis finally paid off for him. With you, in love with you. I'm That was Louie Louie, The Strange Journey of the Dirtiest Song Never Written, produced by David Weinberg, Nick White, and Mike Dodge Weisskopf for KCRW's podcast, Lost Notes. For a link to the series, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk with Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, Resound. All diamonds, no rough.